Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good day. Welcome to New Books in History, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Cotillo, the Royal Historical Society. I'm a host on the channel. And today I'm pleased to have with us uh, Mr. Michael Kluger and Mr. Richard Evans. And today we are speaking about their book, Roosevelt and Churchill, The Atlantic Charter, A Risky Meeting at Sea That Saved Democracy, published by the Naval Institute Press. Welcome, gentlemen. Good to be with you. Good to be with you. Thank you. Gentlemen, why did you write this book? I think Michael ought to answer uh, that because uh, it was his idea. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, the uh, United States of America and Great Britain have had what is referred to as a special relationship. It uh, has been in place uh, for for many, many years. And there's always been an undercurrent in uh, U.S. foreign relations of sort of an America first alternative approach to uh, the United States role in the world. And that America first to me is an anathema and it had been gaining momentum um, without getting into specific politicians or politics. Uh, It just... um, was gaining momentum at the expense of what I consider to be the special relationship. And to me, the Atlantic Charter, the Atlantic Conference, was as strong a example of how effective that special relationship could be and has been to the world and to, of course, the two nations involved, that uh, I thought it was a good way to highlight things. And in my opinion, uh, both the charter and the conference are not appreciated for what those two leaders did in very dark times under challenging circumstances to move forward and uh, put some very important ideas in front of the world. And so it's a reminder uh, of both the relationship and the leadership of the two gentlemen. Whose idea initially was this uh, meeting, risky meeting at sea, as you characterize it? Yeah, um, you know, I, I think that um, FDR, on his side, working through Harry Hopkins, felt that so much could be achieved if Churchill and FDR could get together face to face. So uh, FDR s- surfaced the idea with his Secretary of Commerce, who was his main intermediary between uh, himself and Winston Churchill, and, and they spent time. Uh, Hopkins visited London, and uh, Winston Churchill was—I uh, wouldn't use the word—desperate to get the United States into the war, war, war uh, with his battle with uh, Nazi Germany. But he certainly was uh, was determined to do so. So it was a great, great opportunity for Winston Churchill, and I think. Churchill's view was without the United States entering the war, the prospect of defeating Germany was going to be much, much harder. He did have a plan for defeating Germany and Nazi Germany, but uh, 
it it made a lot more sense uh, with the United States by his side. So uh, hence the meeting for uh, taking place. Yes, the, and if, to embellish on that, what Michael has just said, maybe I could read just one uh, sentence from the introduction, because uh, uh, Churchill was desperate to meet uh, Roosevelt, and he took an enormous risk in uh, jumping on his battleship and heading across the Atlantic, which was infested with U-boats. And the Canadian Prime Minister, Mackenzie King, was very critical of it. And he said there was, uh, they can communicate perfectly well uh, and they don't have to put everybody's lives at risk in doing so. But the, the paragraph I want to read you um, goes like this. It was hard to argue with King. His appraisal of the meeting circumstances was accurate, but buried in his assertions was a false claim. The essence of everything these two leaders would achieve together in the coming years would, in fact, stem from the irreplaceable act of personal contact, the look in the eye, the toast at dinner, the cigar and the cigarette late at night, the sizing up of one man's mood, fears and ambitions face to face. Now, there was a prior meeting or a first meeting between Roosevelt and Churchill back in 1918, uh, in which was not from the perspective of um, of uh, Friendliness was not a successful meeting. Um, Roosevelt apparently expressed some uh, dissatisfaction with Churchill as a person at that meeting. Uh, what was the particulars of that dissatisfaction? Well, uh, honestly, uh, Richard, you might be aware of that I'm not. I do, uh, I do note that uh, FDR honestly did not even remember meeting Churchill. That's uh, what what we write in our book. Um, it took place. Obviously, as you said, World War One. They were very different gentlemen. They both had naval backgrounds, uh, and uh, FDR was uh, in his role as Secretary of the Navy, just uh, in life. But at this juncture, when they met, uh, Churchill was chagrined to find out that FDR didn't even really remember the meeting. So I, I wouldn't have put great faith in the. It wasn't like they knew each other quite well at that time. It, it was a brief and chance meeting that uh, didn't go well. It didn't, you know, it had no effect on anything, really. What were the, in, I'm sorry. I was going to say, in advance of this particular meeting, the two gentlemen had been corresponding for several years in advance, and they had gotten to know each other through uh, through the, the written correspondence as well as some uh, periodic telephone calls, which were rather scratchy and difficult. But they, they were already well well acquainted from that standpoint, uh, but they'd never actually met. Yeah. And uh, Churchill was, uh, of, you know, he, he was... A little, a little tough to call it desperate, but he knew that if he didn't get real uh, help in armaments and support from the United States, Britain would simply not be able to hold out for very much longer. And uh, that is why he took this risk of sailing across the Atlantic to try and form a relationship that he could persuade Roosevelt, which, of course, he didn't do. Uh, the, the, the meeting was incredibly important and useful, but he did not, in August 1941, persuade uh, Roosevelt to join Britain in World War Two, 
the only it, it would probably uh, have come to that eventually. But of course, uh, what made it happen suddenly was Pearl Harbor. And from Britain's point of view, that was a godsend. Now, you make reference to the correspondence which commenced, I believe, in September 1939. Uh, whose idea was that, um, given the fact that it was a little bit unusual for a head of state, head of government, to write to a, um, on a consistent basis to a, a minister in another uh, country's government? You know, I, Richard, I don't know if you have an answer to that. Um, what I would uh, say is that I, I do not. Um, you know, there are people who have uh, much greater knowledge of the background of both Churchill and Roosevelt. And uh, our focus really was on this particular meeting. So uh, I can take you through my background. Richard can take you through his background. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I do know that there are, are some very wonderfully published book series on that ha capture all of their correspondence. And uh, I would just go to chapter one and look at the first letter. And Richard, you may. Yes, know the I answer. think that the, uh, you, you know, one must remember that before uh, Churchill became uh, prime minister in May, uh, Chamberlain had brought him back into the government. And so he, he was back at the Admiralty. And that is where the connection came, because Roosevelt, as we mentioned and, and uh, pointed out, uh, was Assistant Secretary of the Navy. So his, uh, his background was naval, and he obviously wanted to keep in touch with what was happening across the Atlantic. And the man I think he felt he could best communicate with was a former Lord of the Admiralty and a man who had been reappointed as uh, uh, First Lord of the Admiralty. So that's how the connection was made. And, and they just continued from there. And Churchill, uh, in his whimsical way, um, always signed his communiques a former naval person once he became prime minister. And that tickled uh, Roosevelt's sense of humor, I think. Now, what was the origins of the document that we call the Atlantic Charter? So, so they, uh, on the first night of the meeting um, at sea, uh, August 9, 1941, uh, Churchill and uh, FDR, along with Harry Hopkins, Lord Cadogan, Summer Wells, they uh, sat around after a very formal dinner and, and shared some ideas and it was left, uh, it was F FDR's suggestion that Churchill prepare a first draft, which uh, was done. And we actually have a copy uh, of the very first draft of the charter with, with Winston Churchill's handwritten notes. Uh, and so they talked about it. it was, FDR wanted to have it. Um, Churchill leapt at the idea. And uh, I think FDR was very smart to let... Churchill wrote the first draft and present the first draft. Yes, thanks to Alan Packwood at uh, Cambridge University Churchill College, who is the number one uh, archivist for all things Churchill and the real expert. He uh, was kind enough to let me into the archive centre at Churchill College, uh, which is like getting into Fort Knox and uh, having signed all the papers and um, 
this was before COVID, so it was easier than it would have been now. Uh, but uh, I was able to see a lot of documents and actually handle this uh, typewritten bit of paper, which um, a gentleman called McKinnon had, had typed out on his big black typewriter on this rolling uh, battleship in the Atlantic, uh, the original eight points of the Atlantic Charter with uh, Churchill's correction in red ink. And uh, it was quite a thrill to be able to see this. Uh, but that was the document. We print that in, in the book. And that laid out uh, the principles for how nations should interact with each other and uh, in a civilized world and communicate and take in to account each other's differences, but not let it get to the point of war. Uh, I suppose you could say that was the idea behind the United Nations, and there's no question that the Atlantic Charter laid some kind of a foundation for, uh, later, a few years later after the war, the creation of the United Nations. So although the Atlantic Charter didn't itself become uh, a that well known and in fact some people were disappointed that it didn't go further it laid these important foundations um, for the future harmony between nations now uh, why do you in the book give chapter long um, biographies of various dramatis, dramatic personae that uh, we read about well um, I mean the, the book besides the organization of the book is not just the actual meeting, but and the charter itself, and, and what happened during the conference. But we found that there were a handful of players who were integral to the formation of the charter and, and how the conference went. And we decided to do um, descriptive histories of those individuals, where they came from, how they came to be at the conference and their background. So it's, it's sort of how we approach the book. Yes, I think it's important to um, uh, bring to today's public um, uh, the fact that uh, the supporting cast was pretty important. And some of them um, are very well known uh, historically, like Lord Be Beaverbrook, but, uh, and, and to an extent, Harry Hop Hopkins, uh, Sumner Wells, Sir Alexander Cadogan, but uh, there were there were others um, like uh, uh, Wilfred Freeman, who actually had far more to do with uh, getting the Spitfire and the Hurricane manufactured than Beaverbrook did, because he was a ex First World War pilot and a bit of a hero, and he knew how to put together a plane and fly it. And while Beaverbrook banged. Uh, in his usual bombastic style, to get everybody working hard and producing these planes, which were so vital to the eventual uh, victory of the Battle of Britain. It was Freeman who did the hard work, and he's almost completely unknown to history. So we hope that, um, uh, you know, giving him a, a chapter brings a new personality into this whole incredible story of... Uh, how Britain survived uh, in 1939-40 with uh, Hitler and his Nazis camped right across the channel. Uh, overall, what does one make of Roosevelt as a 
personal and political animal. Do you agree with the American, the famous American historian Richard Hofstadler's characterization of Roosevelt as, quote, the patricianist opportunist, unquote? Well, again, Richard, you might want to say something about that. Uh, great respect for Hofstadter. Uh, but I'd, I'd rather stay away from commenting on it. Just, uh, I personally don't feel that I've got the background to say this, that, or the other. Uh, I, I do uh, think... From sorry, I, I, didn't, I didn't get the question. Could you, could you repeat the question? Of course. Uh, overall, what does one make of Roosevelt as a personal and political animal? Do you agree with the famous American historian Richard Hall? I mean, what, yeah, I mean, what, what I would say is FDR was the exact opposite of Winston Churchill. Winston, Winston Churchill was what you see is what you got. He didn't really mince words in many situations. FDR was was inscrutable. He was very Machiavellian in um, how he communicated with both friends and foes, was very, very careful in his use of words and relationships. So, I, I mean, I, I think there's, you know, Hofstetter describes it in a, in a, in a dark way. I, I describe it as he was just very shrewd. <laughs> and uh, he was president of the United States in the middle of a depression and then into a world war. And uh, I think he had traits that he had used through his whole life uh, that served him well in those crises. Um, it was his style. He was not a Mr. Slap your back, bubbly kind of politician. He was uh, very inscrutable, very, very careful about he the relationships he chose, the words he used, and the things he supported and the things he opposed. Uh, I just don't want to yeah. say it was a, a dark side of him. He was just very, very thoughtful, careful, and Machiavellian. I think that the playwright who was brought into the White House uh, at the beginning of the war um, to write speeches, etc., Robert Sherwood, uh, came up with the phrase that uh, epitomized uh, uh, FDR when he referred to his forested interior and fighting your way through that foresting, forested interior to find out exactly what he was thinking when he himself admitted that he often didn't know what his right hand was doing uh, in relationship to his left hand, um, I think sort of says it. Uh, what would have occurred if uh, Harry Hopkins had not been Roosevelt's emissary to Churchill, but instead Sumner Wells? Would it have made any difference to history? Well, I, I think Harry Hopkins, uh, who is known as a great in-betweener, um, what had had remarkable talents and skills, and uh, you know nothing against Sumner Wells. Uh, FDR found that Sumner Wells was someone who would agree with him readily, whereas Harry Hopkins was more of a bosom buddy. Uh, I think that FDR felt the relationship he needed to have with. Both Churchill needed someone that he absolutely trusted, someone that he absolutely trusted, and that was Harry Hopkins. And I, I think while FDR appreciated Sumner Wells and got along well with him and had confidence in him, uh, but what the role that Harry Hopkins played throughout Churchill's, uh, I mean, throughout Roosevelt's presidency, was uh, was unique and irreplaceable. 
Yes, I think uh, Harry Hopkins is, is really one of the sort of great tragic heroes of history because he was a desperately unwell man. He'd had a, 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 an operation on his stomach and had half his stomach cut away uh, sometime in the late theatre, 30s. And uh, he, he traveled to Moscow on FDR's behalf and then crucially to London to meet Churchill and needed to rest up in his hotel before he could gather himself to go to his first um, dinner or lunch, I think it was. It, it spread on for hours, uh, number 10 Downing Street. And uh, he was obviously a man of great fortitude. And I think, I hope that historians will uh, get something out of our chapter on Harry Hopkins in this book, because he, he was he was a huge factor. I mean, we talk about the need for Churchill and, and Roosevelt to uh, understand each other and get to like each other and become friends. But the initial um, contact was made when FDR sent Harry Hopkins across the Atlantic, and if Hopkins and Churchill had hated each other on sight, um, it would have made life exceedingly more difficult than it was. But they didn't. They hit it off absolutely with the first glass of wine, and by the time they got to the brandy at the end of this four-hour meeting, four-hour meal, they'd become friends. And the, the visit to Britain on, uh, by Harry Hopkins was supposed to uh, last uh, a matter of days. In the end, Churchill ended up taking him all over the country. Uh, and, and Hopkins stayed in Britain for over two weeks and uh, went back to FDR and said that despite everything you've heard about him being a drunk and being um, unreliable, uh, the only person you need to deal with in Britain is Churchill because he is in full command of the entire operation. Uh, why was uh, General Marshall, as you as you put it, quote, the most powerful man in the USA after Roosevelt, unquote? Well, his job was to get um, the United States prepared for World War II. FDR knew it was coming, and. Uh, you know, we, we know of George Marshall today as the Marshall Plan, uh, but th this was uh, much earlier, so he, he, it was not as well-known, obviously, and he had a major role, but um, he, uh, he was pulling the armed forces together and was uh, uh, very integral to preparedness for World War II. Yeah, he was the ultimate staff officer. He was the antithesis of a pattern. Um, he never really saw action and probably didn't become as, as famous because of that. Uh, but uh, he was a master planner. He could organize everything that was needed to be organized. And he had this quiet commanding personality that uh, enabled him to run everything on uh, FDR's behalf, and probably the, the assessment was accurate. He was probably the second most important man in America. Why was Roosevelt's relations with Sumner Wells better than Roosevelt's relations with Secretary of State Hull? Well, the uh, you know, first of all, Cordell Hull had been ill and been uh, really away from his office for several months. Uh, and had just returned to uh, to fulfilling his duties as Secretary of State, and I 
I suspect he wasn't yet 100%. Um, and so the conference taking place at sea, it was perfect excuse for Roosevelt to basically not invite Cordell Hall to the conference itself. Instead, uh, Sumner Wells uh, was asked as an undersecretary. Uh, interestingly enough, Churchill, uh, uh, Roosevelt had two of his sons at the Atlantic Conference as well, and one, one of his sons asked the question, gee, why, why is Sumner here? And uh, FDR's response was, because he'll do what I say, versus Cordell Hall, who had his own agenda on many issues, and it was a much more challenging relationship. Yes, it was it was a, a family background thing as well, to an extent. Uh, Sumner Wells had been involved with the Roosevelt's, his family had been involved with the Roosevelt's in New York City as part of society, and they went to each other's weddings, and they'd known each other uh, their entire lives, whereas Cordell Hull was uh, not of that uh, social class. And um, I just think, uh, reading between the lines, FDR felt so much more comfortable in, in the company of Sumner Wells. How did the British react to Sumner Wells's peace mission of the spring of 1940? So again, uh, th that's one, Richard. You might have some information about it. I don't, um, and uh, we leave that to others. Uh, it's just not something that I have. Uh, 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 sorry, could, could you could you repeat the question? I'm I, 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 I'm not clearing, uh, hearing you very clearly. Uh, how did the British react to Sumner Wells' peace mission of, of the spring of 1940? Peace mission with, with who? Uh, well, between the different powers who are at war at that point in, uh, March, uh, in March 1940. He made a trip to Europe where he went to the UK, uh, Germany and Italy as well as France. Well, I mean, Churchill uh, was besieged by people within his own government, led by his only rival for the premiership, Lord Halifax, of wanting to talk peace, wanting to talk to Mussolini, wanting to try yet again, although Chamberlain had failed and failed and failed, uh, to get Hitler to behave in a civilized manner. Um, and Churchill had seen right through this. He'd been telling people for years, and in fact, his son, Randolph, at the age of 21, uh, in the chapter at the end of the book, had been telling uh, the world in his written articles for British newspapers that war was inevitable because the generals were so uh, furious still about the Treaty of Versailles uh, that they would urge Hitler to gain revenge, whatever happened. That was a 21-year-old writing from Berlin in 1930. And uh, the, the father, Churchill, uh, was... Uh, completely in agreement. He, he felt that there was absolutely no way you could deal with a man of Hitler's character and that if you gave an inch, he would grab a mile and that uh, he rebuffed all these attempts to uh, make peace agreements. And that included Sumner Wells and included Halifax. Uh, Chamberlain was, was out of the picture by then, of course, because Churchill was prime minister, but uh, it was a one-man show. It, it, with, without Churchill, uh, Hitler would have come to some agreement with Britain, and the future would have been just the total opposite to how it turned out. Uh, Hitler would have grabbed everything that he could have grabbed, 
and eventually he would have taken over Britain. So it really was a one-man show. Without Churchill, um, the history of the world would be totally different. Would it be true to say that Sir Alexander Cadogan, the permanent undersecretary of state at the Foreign Office, was, uh, could we say, the father of the Atlantic Charter? Well, I don't think he was the father of it, but he certainly had a, a great deal to do with the writing of it, along with Sumner Wells. Uh, I, I, I think it was the two leaders, uh, FDR to begin with, saying we want to come out with some kind of document or statement as a result of this meeting. Churchill leaping at that, saying, yes, it's necessary, we have to. And I think they were the fathers of the document, although the, the actual writing of it was certainly done to a large degree by Cadogan. Uh, totally uh, sitting side by side at some stage on their battleships and cruisers with Sumner Wells. So it was very much a, a team effort. Now, why did you include a chapter on Randolph Churchill in the book, since he was not at the meeting? <laughs> I, um, but this was my decision, and, uh, and Michael wasn't necessarily um, thrilled about the idea, but I think... Um, uh, Randolph Churchill had a far greater impact on his father than anybody imagines. And uh, he, throughout um, Winston Churchill's life, as soon as Randolph became an adult, uh, he was receiving advice and sometimes great direction from Randolph Churchill, and uh, who was, of course, a exceedingly different, uh, difficult character. He was a drunk, and he was abusive, and he was hated by a lot of people who he insulted. And that is his image, and it's a bit of a tragedy. And I read his, his son, Winston Jr.'s book, who I knew. I covered Chicago 68 with Winston Jr. And I read his book, and I thought, this man was brilliant. And the great historian uh, Trevor Roper said that there was no greater political analyst during uh, that period, the 1940s and 50s, than uh, Randolph Churchill. And uh, extraordinarily, um, Winston Churchill wrote to Clementine, his wife, and saying, I, I, I have always been um, uh, in full admiration of Randolph's ability to stand up and speak off the cuff. And Churchill wrote his speeches, and if he didn't read them, he memorized them. And he wasn't a natural off-the-cuff speaker. But watching his son, Randolph, perform on hustings and in Parliament for a time, um, Winston wrote to his wife and said, I'm going to try this. I, I, I'm going to try and, and copy Randolph and just speak uh, off the cuff. And that led, obviously, his, his great speeches that we all know uh, were, were written and worked on. But uh, he took the confidence to speak off the cuff from his son. And that was just, uh, we, we relate in the chapter, uh, numerous occasions when Randolph had an influence on his father. And I, I just wanted to take this opportunity. It's, uh, it, it, he didn't go to the Atlantic Conference, but he was involved in his father's life to a far greater extent than anybody realizes. So, well, uh, I would add that uh, I, I relented a bit. Um, uh, just because the man was so misunderstood. He was also extremely brave. Uh, 
Winston Churchill sent him to uh, reside with Tito and the partisans in what eventually became Yugoslavia with the objective of to tie, tie down as many Nazi troops looking to capture him as possible as a way to uh, take the pressure off uh, other, other parts of the, the battlefield as far as uh, the British were concerned. And uh, uh, Randolph did that uh, very bravely. There's the book that uh, Richard's referring to, written by Winston S. Churchill, uh, uh, his father's son, which is uh, uh, the book of uh, Winston S. Churchill wrote about his father, Randolph. It's a wonderful, wonderful uh, statement. And the man's just so misunderstood. Uh, why not put a chapter in since the book has uh, chapters about all sorts of people who influenced and or helped both Churchill or FDR? Just as a matter of history, um, interesting little tidbit, the, the city of Trieste, which sits on the Italian northern border, um, would have been Yugoslavia uh, had it not been for Randolph Churchill. He knew exactly he'd come to know Tito through having fought with him in, in, uh, in, in the hills of Yugoslavia. And uh, he warned um, his father that if they didn't deploy troops into Trieste, um, Tito would grab it and take it over. So everybody who's been living in Trieste for the last several decades um, uh, should know that um, it was Randolph Churchill who stopped them being Yugoslavs. What is for you the chief legacy of the Atlantic Charter? Yeah, okay. I don't know if Michael's still there, but uh, but the, the, the chief legacy of the Atlantic Charter is that it did lay the foundations for the United Nations, uh, the principles by which uh, countries should interact between each other in a civilized fashion. Obviously, the uh, the tenets of the, of the Atlantic Charter have been broken tragically in, in various places. We've been talking about Yugoslavia, Bosnia uh, being one of the prime examples. But um, it, it, it laid this um, foundation from which people work later. And it was an important moment in history because it was desperately necessary that America and Britain came to some basic understanding to work together. Uh, if, if FDR had not been willing uh, to listen to Churchill and act in, in the ways that uh, he was able to, given the fact that there was a huge um, Republican uh, movement against any kind of involvement in World War II, um, he allowed... Um, uh, uh, the convoys to go across the Atlantic sending much needed supplies to Britain um, and guarded them with the US Navy and he made all these gestures before America was pulled into the war that was based on their conversations while they were creating the Atlantic Charter on their ships of war off the coast of Newfoundland. And it was really a moment in history that uh, we felt needed to be spotlighted because I, I know Michael has too. 
we've asked so many people, what do you know about the Atlantic Charter? And they say, oh, I've, I, I think I've heard of that. And that sort of distant look comes into their eye. <laughs> and people don't really know much about it. But it was a totally pivotal moment in history between the two greatest leaders of the 20th century. Yeah, I mean, one, one could argue, as uh, Prime Minister of Canada did, that much of the planning that took place probably could have done without be done without face-to-face meetings. But the two things that clearly came out of the Atlantic Conference that would have not happened had the, the meeting not taken place was, one, the strengthening and the depth of the relationship between Churchill and Roosevelt on a personal level. And secondly, the charter itself, eight simple points, um, one of which was uh, an agreement to defeat Nazism, but uh, which is no longer required. But the other seven points, as you look through them, uh, slightly over 200 words in aggregate, uh, I do believe are very important guides for how civilized nations should act and uh, have, and not every nation and not every time, but since their, the joint proclamation of uh, the, 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 both, both uh, Churchill and FDR releasing the document to the world at the same time, it's not a treaty, it's not signed, but just releasing it, uh, I think the free-speaking nations of the, of the world have held each other accountable on most occasions to the behavior of those of the points in the charter. And uh, as much that the charter has been lost and not relished as much as the ideas um, is, is as much the motivation for writing the book as anything. On that observation, gentlemen, I would like to thank you very much for being so kind as to speak with us today. This is Charles Cotillo. Thanks for listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thank you, gentlemen, both very much. Thank you.